So when I was recapping what we've gone over so far, you know, first we're coming out with this pretty broad statement that we have natural intelligence, that that natural intelligence is wildly powerful. Life is wildly complicated and hard to coordinate. And this is what we're saying is the coordination problem that life does and we don't seem to be doing somehow. We see how ecosystems do it. We see how nature does it. We see how life does it. Just the ability to exist within your own life support system as a living thing. That's the problem we are facing. We're just trying to name that problem and saying, well, nature does it. It's called natural intelligence. And we're finding that is like successful coordination with your life support system such that you live and thrive. It doesn't mean that how we do it will look exactly the same way as how nature does it, mm -hmm. but that's the problem we have to solve. So the idea is opening it up is like we're looking for a solution to this problem. We're looking for the solution to the problem that has the constraints that whatever you do, do it in such a way that we could imagine ourselves 500 years from now living, thriving as a species on the planet, on this right. planet, <laughs> in a way that we literally thrive. We feel good. We feel as good as we imagine living should feel. And there's still going to be suffering we're still going to be existential givens, of course, but we will have hopefully escaped the existential threats we're under. So that's the problem to be solved. And a lot of this approach is saying, look, it's an open question, but if we can find the things we're obviously doing wrong, that obviously can't be part of the solution, and stop doing that, like, we have to start there. We have to do that. What's not working has a signature, and the way it doesn't work is that our minds are captured, our attention's captured in a, a cognitive style or a way or a stance that reflect a lot of what's been getting us in trouble. So when we have this quality, we come up with explanations that aren't realistic, that don't reflect reality. We believe in them. We can't detect that they're nonsensical. We are very confident in our misunderstandings. And we have this idea that we can create life. When you say create life, I'm, I'm thinking... Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, like bringing something to life. That is right. It fundamentally believes that it can assemble the parts back into the whole. So this focus attention part, it's designed to take a continuum of experience and break it into parts. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of ways to break things into parts that make perfect sense given the task at hand of living. Like it really is true that for quite some time, about a hundred years, I'm going to be a separate part for the most part. You can track me as a persistent separate part. Living things tend to be separate parts and they have intentionality and projectiles and rocks are separate parts. The sun is a separate part and the planet's a separate part. And these things for quite a while operate on pragmatic timescales as separate parts. And part of our ability to survive is to identify them, be able to track them, be able to keep them separate, unique, and come to understand them, how they operate within a whole. And so this part of our mind that breaks things into these separate parts... If that's all it can do, when it can't understand the context, it can't understand the diffuse attention, it can't track dynamic processes, relationships, how things work, it can't watch an unfolding, it just has a bunch of parts, it believes it can put the parts back together to create a whole. And the most extreme version of this that we're living in today is this idea that you could take data which is by definition separate parts without understanding the context it came from and magically putting it into a giant brain with all the data in the world that would start to reconstruct and put the parts back together into something we recognize as a whole. And that's what we're 
putting massive resources into doing is to synthesize the parts into the whole. And then the idea is that with enough parts, we'll eventually arrive back at life. We believe that the parts could serve for context for each other. So you can just make context out of parts, like almost like pixels, right? You can get an image back together with pixels and just put all the parts back together. So what's wrong with just synthesizing parts and parts and parts? Because isn't it true if everything's made out of parts, then I should put all the parts back together. And we're saying that's such a large belief in our society that we actually have algorithms, AI algorithms, giant funding and promise of like, we'll put the parts back together. And this is a, a big argument right now. Does it work like that? Can you put reality back together if you break it all into parts, remove its actual context? When you put all the parts together, do you get the context back? And a lot of people say, yes, you get the context back. Look at it. We're doing it. We're getting closer. Our AIs are getting better. We can create images that look better and better, and it looks more like it worked. Like we could take all these fragmented images, stitch them all together. Somehow some giant brain can take all that data and create something new that looks like it guessed really well at what the context is just by looking at lots and lots of examples of context, basically. Mm -hmm. But basically synthesizing that those disjointed parts, which the parts now are like an image is like a part. It's a snapshot or a sentence is like a part, but it doesn't have the context, the speaker, the intentionality. It's just a sentence, but okay, that's fine. There'll be enough information still in all those parts to synthesize back together what the context is. And so Judea Pearl recently came out with a book formalizing an argument that's been made lots of other places, but not for the general public. So that's why it's such a great book, is this argument was made for the general public in a book called The Book of Why, where he tries to make this argument intelligible to everybody that it can't work like that. You can't take infinite amounts of data and bring back life. And part of the reason you can't do it is very much this problem that if you put parts together and you say, how do all these parts work together without context, you can make up all kinds of things that are consistent with your data. And this is like the world we live in today, just conspiracy theories and wild ways people put data together. If you just have data, you can interpret that data so many ways. So in some ways, what we've been confused about is that it's very easy to come up with a convincing interpretation of data or parts. It's very easy to put parts together and come up with a story of parts. What our brain does when we listen to a story is we say, given what you told me, is that plausible? And only given what you told me, is that plausible? So like, where were you last Tuesday? Oh, I was at my friend's house. Okay, so far so good. Wait a minute. But someone said they saw you at home on Tuesday. Okay, now that's another part. Now all of a sudden the interpretation is not plausible. We bring in more context and all of a sudden things become less plausible. So the problem of trying to assemble parts into a plausible story is that it's very easy with the amount of time we have, the attention we have, and the way we present information to say, okay, I agree, that's plausible. And that's as much energy as I could give it. And that leaves things just completely wide open for presenting things that do not reflect reality and having people buy them as reality. And so what we need is a better mechanism to make these distinctions because that is, again, that is what we're pointing at as the problem of the left hemisphere, that it will take those parts, put them together, not engage the attentional system that could somehow see, does this truly reflect reality? and take these things as plausible, 
and now lean in and adopt and enact ways of being in the world that aren't ultimately going to end well. So the question that we're asking right now is how do we get stuck in this attentional system that has all these problems? We know more about what is going on, what a problem with this attentional system that breaks things down into parts. So now it's a question about how we get stuck there. Yes, exactly. So now we go a little bit more so we can get to get at this question of like, how do we get stuck? So we already pointed at one. One is that if we trust people and they give us something that's plausible, as we know, and when you challenge someone's interpretation of things, it's a social confrontation. We won't necessarily take the time to investigate deeper because of the disruption to having to disagree with somebody, challenge them, challenge what they've been told and the amount of work it would take to investigate. So there's energetic barrier. The more interesting and important way to look at how we get stuck is back to what we were talking about previously, which is the nature of the kind of information we're consuming. When you think about the handoff from the attentional system that does parts to whole, when you want to take something that's a part and you want to restore its context, you want to put it the foreground back into the background, you want to re-embed it into what's called situated conceptualizations. You want to situate it into your ability to hold something in your mind and see where it fits in the whole. That is what we've got to do to start to establish if it reflects a reality. Well, how does it work in a context like you're going to have to imagine it, simulate it? Can I imagine how this works in reality, in the real world? If you tell me, like, a bowling ball is going to do this, and I don't know what a bowling alley is, I'll be like, okay, I don't know how to verify that. What's a bowling alley? I need to be able to think about a bowling alley and pins before I can even imagine what a bowling ball will do. So for us to start to imagine, and, and this is a very important thing, this requires imagination. So anything that will block our ability to situate things back into the whole, we can't do that. We're stuck. We're stuck with just models that are made out of parts, and the parts can't go back into the whole. This can get very complicated. When we're dealing with parts that can't go back into the whole, and we're just thinking like that, that's basically what people experience is like analytic thinking. It's the kind of thinking you would do for engineering, where you can take parts and you can put them back into a whole. That's what you can do for machines. That's what you can do for dead things. That's what you can do for technology. That's what you can do for mathematical proofs. That's what you can do for certain parts of reductive science. You gain so much benefit from that. It also leads us to believe that we'll be successful if we stay in that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that is the only kind of thinking you can do with the focused attention, the analytic thinking. If we stick with that kind of thinking, we'll also reap benefits. And the problem is, which Judea Pearl points out and others, many others have pointed out, that when you have a system of parts, you can't come up with new insights. You can't come up with new ways of seeing things, new synthesis, new explanations that move you through towards a real solution. It doesn't work like that. Insights come from some other cognitive process, and that cognitive process is beyond analytic thinking. It has to be beyond analytic thinking. It has to engage the other attentional system. So we get caught in this style of thinking that we believe will yield results, that's one thing that gets us stuck, is that we, we don't need to go the effort to change our style of thinking away from analytic thinking. 
And then we can build very complicated systems because when you break things into parts and you try to put parts back together, things get very complicated. And they just keep getting more and more complicated. And we get overwhelmed very quickly. And when we get overwhelmed dealing with all those parts, what we have tended to do now is create computers that don't get overwhelmed with parts and then offload our thinking to them to do our analytic thinking for us. So now we defer to statistics and we defer to algorithms and we defer to optimization as a way of trying to think through things because we get overwhelmed with the complexity of all the parts. What we think is really important is to say, is there a quality of parts that we consume such that even if we wanted to situate them back into the whole, we would be stuck. We can't find the context. If we were to present things to ourselves such that we couldn't find the context within ourselves or anywhere to restore, and we coupled that with a model of causality, then how would we escape it? If these models don't allow us to test them against a kind of reality-based context, it's what scientists talk about. You can have all kinds of hypotheses, but can you test it in the real world? How do you come up with how to test it? When it becomes testable or somehow you can ground it in reality or somehow you can even ground it in a thought experiment where you can imagine how a real scenario and can you imagine knowing what you know it playing out with what you're proposing? Is that how it would play out? Is that what would happen? So this grounding is how we test our models. And if you can't ground your model into reality, then you're stuck. You're stuck just with the model. You can't restore the context in. So grounding means restoring the context in reality so that you can test the model in reality yourself. So if someone were to come up with a model that is a causal model that says flying spaghetti monsters came to the planet and inseminated early proto-ape human people, and that's what we're descended from, half spaghetti, half ape human, and that's how we came to be, and that's why our brains feel like spaghetti sometimes. There you go. There's a causal model. You, you can be with me for a second, then your very next thought is like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. But if you didn't know what spaghetti was, they said we're a glurptiglop entity that was drifting around and happened to interact with a, a proto-exoclop that we are descended from that inserted its DNA into our train, and that explains why we are the way we are. You'd be like, okay, if you say so. You're, well, I'm an expert on glop-de-glop and slur slurpity-slop, so are you going to challenge me about that? No, I only want to learn what that is. It sounds complicated. And now you're trusting someone who's experts in that, and then you say, based on your red hair, it's really likely you have like 50% of this thing, and so you have this problem, so you need to take this pill, and you're going to be a lot happier. I have no way to like ground that into my experience. I'm just going to have to take your word for it. Nothing you said makes sense in my world at all in any way I can ground. I just have to trust that you have done that work for me. Okay, so I can't ground it. So now that's a danger. Mm -hmm. Now I've got a social problem where I've got to trust somebody has grounded it. And now I go to that person and say, well, how, do you, how did you come up with your model? And they say, when AI came up with it with a bunch of raw data, like we don't know, the AI knows, but it can't explain it to us. We just know the correlations are really strong and we're going to call that science. And that's what we live in today is that models that can't be grounded are just correlations of things that basically we don't notice that we're missing a groundable mechanism. So for instance, this is a criticism of psychiatry ongoing. 
that they say that you have a, a chemical imbalance in the brain, that hypothesis. Okay, that's one explanation. We have a chemical imbalance in the brain. Where did it come from? How does that happen? How does a chemical imbalance in the brain happen? And this is an ongoing criticism of how medicine works, is that you start with a correlation. You say, well, let's not worry about that yet. We gave people this pill. They felt better. They're doing better. Let's worry about how the thing works later. This is like a bit of a moral conundrum we're often in, where it's like, well, if you know it helps, let's do the how it works later. And the criticism of that is like, if you don't know how it works, you don't know what else it might be doing. If you don't understand more about how it works in reality, then do you really understand what it's really doing? How do you not know it's just doing something temporarily? How do you not know it's not doing other things? How do you know it's not breaking other things while fixing this one thing? There's lots of things you don't know if you don't know how something works, just by looking at one thing you measure and say that one thing I measured got better. We live in a world that's full of data like this, that's full of categories like this that aren't grounded. And so when we get caught up in a causal model like that, let's say the chemical imbalance problem in the brain or anything else like that where there's no how, we just quietly are just appealing to like magic. Like it's almost like it's magic. It just works. And if we could settle for it just works and magic is good enough, then we'll buy that model. And then the problem is, of course, that there's no way to be able to verify if these things are plausible in reality. The other mechanism which you talk about is that you could define a, a causal model that is like a loop that says A causes B causes C causes A causes B causes C. We also get stuck when we hit those. You can see why. Because by the time you get to like seven, A causes B causes C causes D causes E causes F causes G causes A causes B causes C causes D causes Easy E causes track. F causes G. You won't even notice. Seven's kind of our limit, and that is rumination, in a sense. So there's a nature of a way of thinking. There's a nature of when you don't ground them and you follow the causality in a loop, you can get captured. People can experience this really directly. A lot of people feel what it's like, can sense what it's like to go in a thought loop, a mental loop, right? and how hard that is. Yes, exactly. We've been talking kind of the abstract of the problems of the world, science and systems and surviving as a species. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that what is it like for us, for our own ability to navigate our lives when our own attention system has been captured 